everyone. Welcome to the second season of For the Love of Books podcast featuring Indian small press authors with host author Emma Polova. I would like to thank our sponsors, Doug Chavant and the Lowell Ledger, our hometown newspaper in Lowell, Michigan. Today, I will be chatting with author Betty Passing, who will announce the details of her book giveaway of the black bag of Dr. Bill's Murder on the Prairie at the end of the interview. This is the second historical crime fiction book for Pasek, who received the top notable indie book awards for both books. Book number one, Gangster in Our Midst, and for the Black Bag of Dr. Wills. Congratulations, Betty. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And Emma, thank you for inviting me to be a guest on For the Love of Books podcast. <laughs> Marvelous. We're going to have a lot of fun. It is. I am very excited to have you. So I'm going to start us off with a quote about your book. A most fascinating read about life in the wilderness of the U.S., 1850-1890. This crime mystery novel captures its audience's attention with the delicious historical detail from this time period in early America's burgeoning settlements. Who knew? There was such a criminal element lurking in our prairies. I did not know that. You've enlightened me, Betty. All right. (laughs) What is the setting for this story? Well, the setting is Northeast Iowa. And I came across um, a story um, after writing Gangster in Our Midst. I wanted to do book two. So um, I was really paying attention to... um, my research and looking for um, pieces that I might include in book two. And I came across Dr. Wilsey and his son who grows up to be a physician as well. And I was rather intrigued by them. And I realized um, that they immigrated from Canada, uh, Dr. Wilsey, his wife and three children in the mid 1800s. And um, they settled in my hometown area and um, um, I learned a number of uh, other things about this Dr. Wiltsey that um, encouraged me to think that he would be the storyteller in the next book. Um, he, uh, as soon as he arrives in Iowa, he joined a, um, uh, the counties were all starting medical, um, um, medical groups. Um, to promote uh, kind of uh, standard medical care in those days. Uh, mm-hmm. We had college medical colleges out east and physicians were moving uh, in, into the interior of the country. And so he, he joined one of these medical groups to, to learn and to make sure that um, medical care was standard. And in this group, he... Um, um, Within the first year, one of the physicians murders, blatantly murders another physician in the group. So that's why I decided that this physician um, had a story to tell. And the more I looked at him and the stories around him and the, um, you know, the um, events, um, murders that he looked into, that he was going to be the storyteller in my next book. How long did you do research for this? And how do you do research in this kind of a historical setting, 1850 and so forth? Well, you know, everybody thinks that, oh my gosh, that had to be hard. There's no, um, there, 
how do you begin to look for stuff that happened in the 1800s? Well, actually, it probably was harder at one time, but today you can, uh, all of the, the old records, the historical um, uh, chronicles from counties and newspapers, all of that is available online these days and available digitally. So um, it's pretty easy to find um, names like Dr. Alexander Wilsey in those chronicles. And then um, I put out an all points bulletin on Facebook, et cetera, to find locals in the area uh, who know the history of the area so that they can help me. I interview the oldest members, the octogenarians in the community who might know some of these stories, uh, family members too. Um, provide a lot of history. So um, that's kind of how I, that's how I begin anyway. And it's so far, it's played out really well. And how do you know where to draw the line between facts, historical facts and fiction? I write historical fiction too. And sometimes I get really entangled in that. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, so Everybody probably thinks that, uh, probably knows that a historical novel needs to be well-researched. Right. I mean, right down to the, the nitty-gritty, whatever it is. Every T has to be crossed. Every I has to be dotted appropriately for the era that you're writing in. So in my novels, I used real names. Not everybody does it this way, but I used real names, real places, and I told real stories. Um, although here's the... Here's the downside or the upside, whichever way you want to look at it. These stories um, surely didn't happen exactly the way I tell them. So that's where you get the merger of fact and, and fiction. Um, historical records, for example, will tell us um, the names of the first people to settle in, a, in an area. Um, and they'll probably tell us the nationalities of those people. So for example, in the black bag of Dr. Wiltsey, it's placed in Northeast Iowa. Um, I'm from Northeast Iowa, so I know this area the, the best. Uh, the first um, immigrants were Canadians who spoke French, Canadian, and Europeans and, and a variety of European languages, plus the Winnebago Indians still roamed the prairies and they spoke Ho-Chunk as a language. Um, historical records will tell you the names of at least a few physicians um, who were called on by authorities to help solve crimes. And Dr. Wilsey, I learned, uh, was among them. For example, when it was suspected that strychnine might have been used by a husband to kill his wife. One story that I tell is Dr. <laughs> Wilsey <laughs> Dr. Wilson is called in when uh, a, w a woman that they buried just a week earlier, um, the reports start coming back from the community that the day, the, the afternoon after the funeral, the husband is out courting a new woman. And he's um, got a, a, an account set up for her at the mercantile and she can have whatever she wants and he, she can just buy it and put it on his account and he'll pay, pay for it. Well, these um, citizens came forward to the, uh, to the, the town uh, authorities and said, you know, I think he may have done something to kill his wife. And so you learn 
um, what they could figure out back then without, even without crime laboratories and forensics that we have today that they can uncover if someone was uh, murdered maybe by strychnine. Isn't that cute? I just love that. that. Is, I love that. I really do. Both of these books are memoriams, right? To whom? No, these are no. historical crime novels. I okay. wrote, before that, I wrote two before. memoirs. Before, okay. Yeah. All yes. right. I wondered about that. <laughs> okay, so what is the connection, if any, between these two books? Between well, the gangster and the black bag? Well, they are two books in my, my gangster series. Gangster in Our Midst, I wrote first. And, um, you know, when I was a little girl, about nine, I started telling people that I was going to write books someday. Where that came from, I don't know. But, <laughs> But anyway, that stuck with me my whole life. My plan, all my, all these years and these mm -hmm. decades have been to, to eventually write books. I retired 10 years ago okay. and started writing books. And one of the, um, the, the, on my short list of ideas was to write about the gangster who came to my hometown in the 1920s. Uh, and he bragged to the local people that he was a bookkeeper for Al Capone. How did you know about that fact? Well, when I moved into town about a day later, one of my neighbors told me that the town has a gangster and he worked and he worked for Al Capone. So it was like, well, I moved in from the farm. I didn't know about gangsters or Al Capone or anything, but that, 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 piece of knowledge stuck with me all these years. So um, I grew up in this town. My family moved into Fairbank, Iowa is the name of the town, although mm -hmm. in the book I call it Oxbow. Okay. Which, uh, and um, so um, I grew up in this town. I never met this gangster. He was still living there when I was there, although I never had the occasion to run into him. Um, he didn't die until 1980, I think it was. Um, but um, people told me stories about being afraid to associate with him. They, they really believed he was part of Al Capone's uh, outfit. He dressed like a gangster, walked like a gangster, uh, had, wore a fedora on his hat, on his head, you know, in this community of, of uh, people who dressed like farmers and small town businessmen, he really stuck out. And uh, so, uh, so anyway, um, 10 years ago, I, I entered, I um, began to research him. And um, one of the first things I did was to go onto Google and I typed in, uh, his name was Louis LaCava. So I typed in Louis LaCava and Al Capone and up popped um, the, uh, the text from the Al Capone tax evasion trial that happened in 1931. And anybody, okay. who, goes, anybody who goes and does that can still read that, that text from the trial. So I knew okay. this Louis LaCava really was Al Capone's bookkeeper because he gave his testimony as Al Capone's bookkeeper. And then lots of other research um, confirmed that he really was. So it turned out to be quite a story. And the people in my oh, part my. of the world uh, in Northeast Iowa were quite shocked um, that he really was um, this gangster with, with Al Capone. So he was a, a lieutenant at part of the time for Al Capone. Mm -hmm. so 
he was um, doing the dirty work. He was a bookkeeper and um, a hitman. So he he occupied, uh, according to the police department reports, he he did all of those things. So it turned out to be quite a story. That's fascinating. The second book then. Um, the second book then. I wanted to stay in the gangster theme, obviously. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we think that. Gang, the gangster term uh, originated in the, you know, from that 1920s and 30s prohibition era, but we had gangsters since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, didn't, I didn't go back to the beginning of time for this second book, but I went back to the 18, mid 1800s. And I write about the prairie banditti who are preying on the new immigrants as they come into the into Northeast Iowa. Uh, land is a big thing uh, that they were trying to steal. If they could steal your, if they could kill the owner uh, of the land, uh, they could uh, they could claim that that land is their own. Um, horse thievery was big. So if they, horses would sell for $50 a head. So that was a lot of money back then. Right. So you could expect your, your animals to be stolen uh, at any point. So there was a lot of gangsterism that was going on. Um, the first prisons were built during that era. Uh -huh. right. um, but, but of course, history records a lot of hangings too that didn't, they didn't That's bother true. to go through the court system. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what prompted your interest and mainly what sustained it throughout these two books in Gangsters? Well, you know, I didn't grow up as a little girl and say, I want to write gangster books. I just thought I was going to write books. That's right. I, yeah. yeah. So uh, so the first, the fact that my hometown had this gangster living there and nobody knew his story you know kind of took me down a road that i never thought i would go down um so um i began i wrote the first gangster book and then i wrote a second book and i'm working on a third book that i hope to publish amazing this year. isn't that do crazy you, what do you, you want to write. give us a little bit of a snippet what the third book will be about Oh, no, I'm not no, going to do you're that. You're not going no, to do that. No, that no. brings bad luck. You're right. That's bad you're luck. You're right. Yep, yep. Let's not do that. Yeah, Why let's did you decide to go the indie way, self-published indie? Well, you know, everybody told me that um, if you write a manuscript and you send it to a, a to publishers, it could be one, two, five, ten years before you publish mm -hmm. it. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, that wasn't going to work for me. Mm -mm. I had a story I was dying to tell and, uh, right. you know, how that goes. And it needed to be told. So what was the biggest surprise that came out of both your research and writing of both of these books? I think it's important to keep them connected. Yes. Um, so um, the biggest surprise, obviously, uh, in Gangster in Our Midst, the first book, um, you know, well, I should say the hardest part of the research was finding this Louis LaCava in mm -hmm. the own outfit. I mean, it's easy to find him in, uh, you know, in history or in various places, but placing him actually in the center of Al Capone's um, group of insiders 
I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to do that. I remember the day of, and I found, I found snippets in newspaper articles mm-hmm. that they were connected, but I wanted to see a newspaper clipping that had both of their faces in a picture on a newspaper. Okay. Oh my gosh, the day that I found that article, it was in a newspaper in California, Berkeley, California. Here was a picture of Al Capone and Louis LaCava. And there was a journalist in California who had been tracking their relationship since the mid-1920s. And he wrote a summary of their relationship that was very difficult uh, over the years. It had uh, uh, Al Capone threatened uh, Louis LaCava that he was going to kill him. He ran him out of Chicago, said, if you return, I'm going to kill you. So that was a... uh, And then... um, Louis LaCava found people who would speak to Capone on his behalf. So he was welcomed back into Capone's um, good graces. But I found an article written by a California journalist who'd been Mm -hmm. following and tracking their relationship all these years. And here was this picture of the two of them. That's amazing. I thought that was proof positive that Louis LaCava was indeed part of his inner circle. Um, as far as the second book, The Biggest Surprise, mm-hmm. um, really, really isn't gangster related, but it's um, the fact of how widespread a drug called laudanum was, uh, yes. was in, the, in the 1800s. We think that the cocaine um, and the opium epidemic in America happened more recently Oh no, it happened. It's not true. Um, Already back on the prairie, women, you know, would would go to their doctor and complain about maybe being moody after the loss of a of a a stillborn child or Mm -hmm. um, just staring out their window into nothingness, you know, on the prairie, um, they would get depressed. Um, The physicians were would readily produce would prescribe laudanum for them. Laudanum, yes. Yep. And after that, they never really seemed um, <laughs> totally awake. And their whole system appeared to be sunk kind of in a stagnant state. So uh, the whole prairie women were probably the first people to really um, become addicted to it. And then the Civil War, of course, really helped set off America's opiate uh, epidemic. Yes. Um, the Union Army alone supposedly issued 10 million opium pills to the soldiers. Incredible. Uh, and then when they came home, they were addicted and they needed more. So, um, my goodness. Uh, all right. We're running <laughs> out of time. Nice. So one last thing, because you're such an expert on this. What kind of advice would you give to other authors who want to write historical fiction and not necessarily about gangsters. <laughs> but it can be about gangsters or about historical crime. This is a yeah. very popular genre. Yeah, I think it is. Well, first of all, if you're going to write historical fiction, you have to be prepared to do a lot of uh, digging and research. Um, and you have to be sure to find the facts in you know, a variety of sources that it says that if it says it in one place doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but find it in multiple sources. That's kind of right. the, 
the journalist in me that you find mm -hmm. uh, things sure. in multiple. And, um, uh, and it just takes a lot, a lot of work and a lot of research. And you're going to have, you're going to find more information than you can ever put in one single book. Nice. Uh, that's the hard part is paring it all down and only mm -hmm. using what you need to. But my gosh, if you liked, if anyone likes to do research and likes history, it's for, uh, them. Like it's for them. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Give us a reading, a brief right. reading. We have like two and a half minutes and then you're going to announce the giveaway. We're going to get all of this in. <laughs> oh, you think we can get all of this in? <laughs> I'll time you. All right. I'll time so, you. Two, two and a half minutes. Okay, let's go. All right. So I'm going to read a little bit from mm -hmm. chapter 18. The chapter is called The Broken. Uh, Dr. Wilsey has, um, on this particular day, he's joined up with Dr. Ward, another physician from the town, and they are going to call on a variety of clients together. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ward has a degree from an Eastern college, so he's um, mentoring Dr. Wiltsey. Dr. Wiltsey ultimately gets his um, credentials from a Chicago Medical Institute. But uh, so he, they're out on this particular day and they're going to call on several clients. So I'll, I begin the spring of 1871. Dr. Ward invited me to accompany him on three medical requests. First, to investigate complaints of negligence of a child of, of about eight years of age. Second, to treat a farmer who had caught his hand in the cylinder of a threshing machine, which would likely require amputation of the hand. And the third, he said, would be a most familiar circumstance involving another murder. A town trustee had first alerted Dr. Ward of a malnourished boy weeks earlier. His mother had died when the boy was a year and a half old, at which time the father, John Link, placed his son into the care of a neighbor, Mr. Richards. He was said to be a very gentle man. Mr. Link had remarried two years ago and the child was returned to his home. From time to time, Mr. Richards still called on the Link's home to check on the boy. And on a recent occasion, when Mr. Link and his new wife sat at the table to eat, Mr. Richards saw, he witnessed, the naked boy crawl from under a bed to eat victuals that Mrs. Link had placed in a metal pan in the corner of the kitchen. The Lynx farm was 14 miles west of Oxbow in Bremer County. Along the way, Dr. Ward informed me no advance notice had been given to Mr. and Mrs. Link of the directive to investigate the child's well-being in the home. Dr. Ward brought his mare to a standstill in the dirt yard centered between a gray two-story framed house, a stable, and a fenced-in chicken coop. The only animal in sight was a Guernsey cow grazing in a field beside, beyond the stable. A scraggly St. Bernard dog gingerly approached the carriage, seemingly more curious than threatening. We le leapt from the carriage and headed toward the covered porch at the front of the house. Dr. Ward, with black bag in hand, gave three short knocks on the door and waited with me at his side. All right, we're going to have to stop now. Thank okay. you for the All reading. Right. And now if you could announce the details of your book giveaway. The first person who emails you with the subject line, the black bag of Dr. Wiltsey will get a signed copy of your book. 
And Betty, if you could please give us your email. So my email address is be like in boy, be like in boy. <laughs> and then my last name is Pasek, and that's P like in Paul, A double S as in Sam, I C K at Comcast.net. Okay. And now parting shots. You first, Betty, you're my guest. What would you like to leave our listeners with? You've enlightened us today. I'm so oh, happy. happy. Oh, I'm so right. happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would like to leave my listeners with um, this. Uh, it sounds cliche-ish, but um, pay attention to your history because yes. you find it keeps repeating. Yes. There's not really nothing new under the sun. And yes. much of what America is exp experiencing today with the polarized uh, political parties and um, so much of that has, we've seen it so many before. times before. Go back and look at your history, yeah. see how people dealt with it. Yes. And um, pay attention. And I yeah. add, pay attention. So, because history does have a tendency to repeat itself in a bad way. Not in just bad, in, a, yeah. in a bad way, so, and pay attention. And my parting shots are read indie, buy indie, and write indie. Support your local authors and newspapers. Keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>